you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and our pal Ange is back. Hello, Ange. Hey, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for coming back. This is very exciting. We're here to talk about the King Kong Treasury, and some of you may be wondering, what King Kong Treasury? And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, this book was originally released by Gold Key. It's a straight-up adaptation of the 1933 movie. It was released in 1968, of all times, uh, as a regular-sized comic book. 25 cents, full-length adaptation. It's, an auth- it's a, On the cover, it's listed as an authorized edition. So presumably they got the rights from RKO or whoever had the rights to King Kong at this point. Uh, and then it was re-released in 1976 as a Treasury edition to coincide with the remake. But we'll get to all that stuff in a moment. But first, we're going to do just a brief synopsis of the plot. For any of you who haven't seen the movie King Kong, I don't know if there's anybody out there who hasn't seen King Kong at this point. The, uh, it breaks down into a couple of chapters, and this is the basic story. It's chapter one. Movie producer Carl Denham wants to, re- wants to make the greatest movie of all time, but he needs an actress for the lead role. He bumps into a starving young woman named Anne and offers her the job, which she gratefully accepts. Soon they are on their way to a remote island, and during the long voyage, Anne falls in love with the ship's captain, Jack Driscoll. Chapter 2. On the island, the camera crew meets a local tribe, which tell them the strangers are not welcome. They also demand the woman of gold be left behind as an offering to their god, called Kong. The crew makes it back to their boat, but during the night, some of the tribe sneak aboard and kidnap Anne. Anne is strapped to an altar where she is terrified at the sight of a giant ape, King Kong. Chapter 3. Driscoll and Denim give chase, but they are nearly killed by a series of prehistoric creatures thought long extinct. They eventually catch up with Kong, Anne still in hand, and are witness to a fight between Kong and a stegosaurus. They try to escape by walking across a giant log, using it as a bridge between the two cliffs. Kong grabs the log and shakes it, sending all but Denim and Driscoll to their deaths. Kong then fights a T-Rex and almost dies in the attempt, much to Anne's horror. Chapter 4. Kong carries Anne to a giant mountain shaped like a skull. While he fends off an attack from a pterodactyl, Driscoll sneaks up and grabs Anne. They dive into a nearby pool to escape Kong's grasp. Chapter 5. Driscoll and Anne make it back to the others, but Denim refuses to leave without capturing Kong. Using smoke bombs, they knock out the beast. Chapter 6. In New York... Denim is preparing for the opening night of his show, which he calls King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. Kong is placed inside a cage, but when he sees what he thinks is Denim harming Anne, he goes wild and smashes his way loose. He rampages through the city, finding Anne in a hotel room. Chapter 7. With Anne in his grasp once again, Kong runs to the highest spot he can find, the top of the Empire State Building. The army sends a squadron of planes to attack him. Meanwhile, Driscoll once again rescues Anne. Kong sees this and loses his balance while fighting off the planes. He falls to his death, crashing onto the street below. As a crowd gathers, Denim remarks that it wasn't the planes that got him, it was beauty that killed the beast. 
And that is basically the story of King Kong. So, Ange, uh, you had this comic as a treasury edition, right? You had it when it came out in 76? That is correct. Okay. Do you remember um, you had it as a kid? You bought it, like, off the stands or something like that? Yeah, you know, this one holds a very special place in my heart, and so I'm glad that I had the opportunity to talk to you about it. You know, uh, I describe my youth as either my family being on the top rung of lower class or the bottom rung of middle class. Um, <laughs> but every penny really needed to be counted, and everything was very much budgeted by my parents, and there really wasn't a lot of money just for frivolities. Um, and I can remember that I went to Kmart, of all things, with my mother, and this was in, like, a standee of something. And I was already reading comics back then, and, and I liked comics. Um, I get the sense it's more like 77 or 78 when I got this for some reason, but um, I asked her, will you buy this for me? And the answer was always no to those sort of things. But for some reason this time, I was like, can you buy this for me, please, please, please? She said yes, and so uh, she bought this for me. And I can tell you that it was just, it was very strange. It was very unusual to have a request like that met. And so I told my mother, I said, I will read this comic book every day because you bought this for me. Aww. And so literally, so literally, I think like a month, every day, I would bring this treasury out and read it to the point that I think I had it memorized at one point. And I think she finally came up to me and said, like, I know that you love that. I'm very glad that I bought it for me. You don't have to read it every day if you don't want. <laughs> uh, and so it kind of was in a stack of, you know, other treasury editions that I had at that time. Uh, so it really holds this sort of like warm place in my heart as like, wow, this was, you know, it was only a dollar, but it was a big deal. And, um, and so I remember it pretty vividly. That's wonderful. That's a really, well, yeah, I mean, a dollar to, I mean, to a kid, a dollar is a fortune. I'm sure to your parents, it probably wasn't a ton of money, but if they're, you know, if every, if every nickel counts, you know, spending a dollar on a book, it's kind of a big, especially when comics at the time were what, 20 cents, 25 cents, 30 yeah. cents, you know, I mean, it's three times the price. But I guess as a, as a parent, I'd have to ask my dad about this because he's the one who bought me the treasuries. But like, you know, I'm guessing that as a parent, you, this book, look, it, this looks like a value. You know, yeah, it's a dollar, but it's a big book, and it's got a lot of pages. It seems like yeah. you keep a kid busy for a long time. And, you know, we've talked about, uh, in Film and Water, we've talked about how I got to know old movies because my dad and I would sit down and watch it. And so I feel I had already seen the original King Kong, so I had a background of what the whole story was before um, we bought this. So I was always, as a kid, like, oh, Godzilla and Gamera and King Kong and that sort of stuff. So, um so it was really just um, adding on to not only comics, but my love of, like, big monsters and things like that. How do you feel like – well, you know what? Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about the, the people behind this. The cover, the painted cover, is by someone named George Wilson. I'm not terribly familiar with him. I like the cover. Uh, on the front, it's, you know, Kong on top of the Empire State Building, and he's crashing all the planes. And on the back cover, it's just the painting once again uh, reprinted, but without all the trade dress, which is kind of a nice little detail. The, uh, the adaptation is uh, unknown in terms of who wrote it, but the art is by Giovanni Ticci and Alberto Giolitti, two, again, two artists that I'm, I'm unfamiliar with. Art-wise, I think it's a perfectly solid adaptation of King Kong, but I don't think it's anything terribly more than that. It's not, um, you know, not terribly stylish. I don't mean to run down Gold Key, but like Gold Key comics to me were a little on the dull side. They weren't. They didn't submit themselves to the comics code. 
because they were even offended at the notion that anything they re anything they printed would be unacceptable for children. So, you know, of course, they couldn't get anything. They couldn't be too horrific or too scary or too anything. So this is a fairly straightforward adaptation of the movie, but I don't think it's... It, it, the movie, to me, is much more dark and ominous and creepy and weird. This is a much more kind of kid-friendly version of the movie, if that makes sense. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. You know, in fact, I think it's sort of funny you talk about how faithful it is to the movie. Like, there are panels that are literally just Kong's hand, right? Almost like... If, like in the movie when all they had was his giant hand to have right. right in or like a close-up of his face looking in the window that seems to be like a straight shot so you could have been bigger right the the film was obviously limited by what they were able to do from a special effects point of view but this is uh, pretty much on the money and then even there's one you know my favorite part of the movie is he like rips the jaws apart of that one monster in that oh, yeah. battle. And then in the movie, he kind of like nudges it like, Oh, are you dead? I didn't mean to kill you. The fight was fun. Um, and <laughs> this, right. This just doesn't have that sort of, um, the power that is in that fight in that movie. Um, so it is kind of a little bit less, uh, as you say, monstrous or horrific. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first bought, when I first got this treasury, I didn't know that it was a reprint of a regular size comic. And I was disappointed that there is no like full page shot of King Kong, you know, like there isn't a one page. King Kong is mostly done in relatively small panels. And I was like, geez, you did a treasury and you didn't do one full. Page. Well, of course, the artists didn't know they were doing a treasury. It wasn't meant as a treasury. It was meant as a regular size comic. So space was probably, you know, at a premium. They didn't think it would be printed that big. So I can't, I can't judge it by that standard. That said, all the shots, like the first shot of King Kong in the book is a close-up of his face, which seems like a weird way to go about. You would think the first shot you would have of King Kong, it would be a full, you know, like shot of his body and giving you the sense of his monstrous size. And instead, it's just a big close-up of his face, which is a little strange. Um, he always, throughout the book, Kong has kind of a wild-eyed look, like he's wide-eyed, like he doesn't look, his brow never seems to sort of change throughout the story. He kind of has the same look throughout the entire book, and to me it gives him almost a comical look. Uh, on the cover, he looks more ferocious, like he's got more snarling. To me, he's much more scary looking on the cover than he is on the inside. So again, it's, it's you know, it's a safer version of the story. Uh, and another detail that I couldn't help but notice was, and I have to think this was because it was written and drawn in 1968, and does not look like a woman from the 1930s. She looks like Gwen Stacy. <laughs> she has like a black hairband. Like she looks yeah. like Gwen Stacy. You know? <laughs> like the the artist must have had a Spider-Man comic hanger because she looks like a hip mod woman of 1968. Even though the movie, is, the story is clearly taking in the 30s with the biplanes and all the other stuff. And I was like, oh wow, this is what it would look like if Gwen Stacy was in a story. <laughs> you know, I have to echo your point about the splash page or lack of splash pages because, you know, I, I don't have this anymore. Uh, and uh, I was lucky enough to get a copy so that I could read uh, in preparation of this. And in my mind, probably because I was a kid the last time I read this, I was waiting for in my head a giant splash page of him breaking through the uh, native's gate as right. he's chasing Anne. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get to that splash page. I can remember it. it was bigger than life. I can't wait. And then I turn and it's like, oh, my God, it's like two thirds of the page. Uh, you know, so I was like, that's like the perfect moment to do something super dramatic. And uh, as you say, they just didn't take advantage. Now, you mentioned you don't have the treasury anymore. You lost it over the mists of time. Yeah, I have to say there was a period in my life that there were, I, you know, um, 
in my youth, as I collected all of these things, there was no bags or boards or backing boards. There was literally a giant cardboard box uh, of comics that were dog-eared, strewn, you know, loose. And then next to them was a pile of treasuries, the Rachel Ghoul one, the Tomahawk one, the, you know, Superman Bicentennial one, this one, Dick Tracy, uh, Superman Muhammad Ali, and a couple of others. And I would say probably somewhere between college and med school, there was a, I describe it as a parental purge. Um, <laughs> I, I had my long boxes with all of like the well-kept boxed and boarded ones that I had been collecting, you know, whatever, the 10 years prior. Um, but those loose ones, I think, just disappeared in the night. And unfortunately, that included these treasuries. Oh, Such a bummer. <laughs> Such a bummer. And they were like, you had all of your comic books with you in those fancy boxes and you never took these. And I was like, oh, I never thought about taking them and I would have. And But, you know, such is life. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. At least, at least it was a well-loved at the time, you know. I mean, you yes. really, yeah. Now, when you got the comic, did you, had you seen the movie by that point? Um, the, Dilo, the Dino De Laurentiis one or the original? Uh, actually, either one. I, probably not the Dino De Laurentiis one, but either one. Yeah, the original one I definitely had because I definitely knew this story 100 percent as oh, okay. I was reading through right. this. But what I can tell you is that, you know, again, you know, my dad loved old movies. My dad introduced me to this original King Kong. And in another one of these like rare but special days, he took me to see the deal, uh, the De Laurentiis remake on the big screen um, when I was a kid, probably in whatever that was, 78. Um and it was being shown in an old-time movie theater, like with a balcony and gold leaf and fancy ornate stuff around the screen. And we sat in the balcony, which, you know, those didn't exist in movie theaters that I was used to. And right. uh, I can remember that pretty vividly as well. Oh, that's really great. That's a really great memory. My, my dad uh, remembers being a kid seeing King Kong in the theater, the original King Kong. Uh, when it was re-released, because King Kong was famously re-released uh, for, you know, give a little bit of history, in terms of um, the movies, horror movies were on their way out in the late 30s, after the initial boom of Dracula and King Kong and Frankenstein and the Invisible Man, and then by the mid-30s, they were, they, people were just sort of like, ah, okay, they had sort of faded, and then some um, some entrepreneur, some industrious uh, movie theater owner decided to get prints of Dracula, Frankenstein, and King Kong and run them as a triple feature. And it did such huge business that it basically restarted the cycle of horror movies again. And they all started putting horror movies back into production. And my dad remembers seeing King Kong. Uh, and he doesn't remember exactly when, but it had to have been around that time because King Kong came out in 33. My dad was born in 33, so we obviously didn't see it then. But if, he's old, if he was old enough to remember seeing King Kong in the theater, that would have been 39. So he would have been six. So that's right about when it was. Now, he doesn't remember anything past that other than just the memory of seeing it. But I like, you know, I'm such a nerd for old-timey Hollywood and old-time movie-going experiences that it's like, I'm just trying to imagine what that would be like, seeing King Kong in 1939. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whoa, boy, you know, it's such a big deal. I've never seen this on the big screen. I would love to. That would be really exciting. And I'm, I'm very excited about uh, Kong Skull Island, which is why, kind of why, why we're doing this one now, because I am super jazzed about that movie. Now, have you seen the, uh, the Peter Jackson one? Yeah, you know. I wasn't... <laughs> okay, review. All right, we got your review in there. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I love the original, and I um, and I like the Dino the Dino De Laurentiis one very much, probably because it's just ingrained in my mind. Like I had, 
a King Kong remake lunchbox in elementary school. Like that's how much I loved it. <laughs> and then I saw the Peter Jackson one. And I think that, um, a little Peter Jackson goes a long way. Um, <laughs> and I never really quite glommed onto it as much. You know, I went in with such fervor um, and I just didn't get where I wanted to get with that movie. I can appreciate that. I, I have talked about on Film and Water before that uh, I tend to find movies that are two hours plus to be very long, to be overlong. But when their movie is three hours, I tend to like it again because I feel like, well, making a movie that's three hours long is very uncommercial. So if you're going to make a movie three hours, odds are you really need three hours to tell your story. Whether mm. it's, uh, it's a Mad, 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 Mad World or Boogie Nights or something of that length. King Kong is one of those exceptions where I was like, yeah, they could have knocked probably 40 minutes out of this and it would have been okay. Yeah, I think that that's kind of my problem is that it's just sort of like, oh my gosh, you know, just get me to the Empire State Building already. <laughs> and and this is coming from a guy that like whatever the Kong versus Godzilla with Mecha Kong and like I'll watch that with like you know microwave popcorn and orange soda and like love it, you know. <laughs> so you know almost any King Kong I love. Yeah, now this this version, uh, the the comic version. Again, we don't have a whole ton to say about it because it's, it, it's a very straightforward adaptation. One of the other things that I find is like. I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but, like, Kong is colored blue throughout this whole comic. And I don't know, there's something to me just, like, less scary that he's colored <laughs> blue. He's got, like, Superman blue on his fur. And, like, I think the – I mean, I know the movie, of course, the original movie is in black and white. But the, 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 the black and white Kong has kind of a – I don't know, like a dirty, cruddy feel. Because, of course, he is. He's out there. But here he looks very clean and almost antiseptic, and he just doesn't have that – you know, scary element to him that I feel like he probably should. Yeah. Um, I agree that the blue kind of gives him sort of a great ape, you know, yeah. animal <laughs> kind of feel, uh, as opposed to, you know, some dread beast God, which is sort of a, uh, a term they use throughout the beginning part of this comic to sort of describe him. Right. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it doesn't have the sequence, which you, which you talk about where he moves the jaws of the dead dinosaur in a kind of quizzical, you know, yeah. What's what's that about? And of course, uh, one of the famous parts of King Kong King Kong lore is the spider pit sequence, which has been lost to the mists of time. Where all the because uh, when all the the um, all of uh, Denim's crew fall off the log, they fall into the spider pit, and it's this sequence that was shot for the movie where they run into giant spiders and all sorts of really horrific creatures, and apparently. I guess the movie was originally screened with that scene and people just were so horrified by it that it was cut and the footage apparently is lost to the mists of time. Now, the script exists with the sequence and on the King Kong uh, DVD for the original movie, it comes with a documentary where Peter Jackson and his crew, the Weta guys, literally recreate that sequence using uh, technology available at the time because they're all just such a bunch of King Kong nerds. And... When I got this comic, because I bought this as a, as a, like off of eBay, I never knew this existed. And when I was doing research for my treasury site, I was like, there's a King Kong treasury? Wow, cool, okay. And I went and bought a copy. Uh, and I was like, held out a little bit of hope that kind of like how other movie adaptations have scenes that are not in the movie, 
because yeah. of all the you know all the various things that go on with the production. I was hoping there maybe would be some extra scenes, but no, it isn't. Like in the original King Kong movie, there's the scene where King Kong scratches Fay Ray, like pokes her with his finger, and then like he like sniffs his finger because of course Anne smells wonderful, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, then that's not in the movie. I mean, the minute the minute the censors saw that, they were like, "Out!" You know, like in 1939 when it was re-released, they're like, "That scene's out." No, no, no. But none of that is is here in this in this edition. But I would think if you're a kid and you wanted to introduce your kid to King Kong, like this would be still a fun book to give them. It's safe. It's there's nothing you know too terribly scary. But it's a nice adventure, and the color the coloring is quite nice. And so you know, I think it's it's probably like a solid little purchase for a kid that if you want to introduce him to King Kong. Yeah, and you know, I think that it had everything in it that a young Ange was into at that time. There's a giant monster, there's like five different types of dinosaurs, right? There's Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Pterodactyl. There's guys dying. We see like one guy in the plane die. We see people fall off of the log. And then what I describe as always like the the way that I continue to have my uh, convince people to buy me comics is that there's like decent vocabulary in this, right? Like there are a couple of phrases that I thought... Um, you know, Kong's mighty grip has the strength to crush the snake's tough, resilient sinews. Like, I'm sure I had to look up sinews as a six-year-old, right? You know? And then some of it is even, like, a little bit poetic, you know? Um, Fascinated by these strange birds, the biplanes, Kong watches with rapt attention as they peel off in the attack. Then his heart, pumping rage through his bloodstream, he turns to meet his tormentors, right? There's something very, you know... When you're six, seven, eight years old, this is like grown-up, you know, talk, right? And then you can go back to your parents. Like I would say, you know, I went up the slide at school today. It was treacherous, right? You're like, whoa, like where did you learn treacherous? And you go like, oh, because when Kong is climbing the cliff, it's a treacherous climb. So, you know, these were always the things that I used to try to convince people. Like, it's good to buy me these things. Like, my vocabulary is growing. <laughs> That's interesting. I used to do the same thing. I, I, I remember being a kid, and if when like uh, the, the the example I used the most is uh, when Batman used the phrase "modus operandi." I was like, what, <laughs> what the hell is that? What's modus operandi? And I would go and look it up because I cared. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if you tried to get me to read, you know, the Pushcart War when I when I was in sixth grade, I wasn't interested. <laughs> but if Batman is talking about modus operandi, I'm like. Yeah, I got to find that it's important to Batman, so it's yeah. important to me. I got to find out what that's all about. So, yeah, that's yeah. true. This is a very this has a, a lot of kind of flowery dialogue for a kids comic. Yeah, I wish I could remember exactly what comic it is, but the the um, the example I always give is that somewhere somebody said, "I see your Ophidian friend has hidden the weapon in his voluminous cape." And you know, as a kid, it's like I got to look up Ophidian and voluminous, right? You know, but um, I don't know which comic that was in my youth. That sounds like uh, Steve Skeets to me. (laughs) Very flowery. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that was the work of Steve Skeets. But yeah, it's nice. It's uh, like I said, as I'm going over the pages, and we'll post some of them on the website over at the the the, the, our site, which is FireAndWaterPodcast.com. Yeah, there's there is a lot of kind of nice. I mean, you've got a narrator. You know, giving you some of the details. The ground shakes as the monster from the past falls a few feet from the search party. Uh, this would make a great power record when I when I think of it. it would, oh it would yeah, kind of cool. With savage fury, the monster surges upward, tearing the raft to bits. Like that would be very exciting. It's really cool stuff. So yeah, this is a it's a it's a, it's a nice little comic book. So um, are you excited about uh, Kong Skull Island? I guess we're wrapping up. Do you are you going to go see that movie? 
Uh, I think I am going to see it. I, it really looks like it's going to be um, sensory overload, right? Yeah. Like every commercial just makes me think that this is going to be we're going to start out and it's just going to be nonstop action the whole way through. Um, and I think that I'm probably going to be more interested in seeing that because I think if you retell the Kong story again, you're just always going to fail in yeah. comparison to the first two versions. So let's just do something completely different. Um uh, so I am pretty excited. And, you know, it's got Samuel L. Jackson in it. I'm sure he's going to be playing Samuel L. Jackson. And, right. You know, so right. that'll be fun. <laughs> I wish they would do a treasury edition of Kong Skull Island. I, I pitched this in the, the episode I did with Christy Blanche about that, you know, these companies should be doing treasury editions of all their movie pro- movie properties as they come out. And a King Kong Skull Island treasury-sized comic? I'd, I'd, I'd drop $20 on that. Yeah, I mean, even things like, you know, um, I don't know if you said it in that episode or not, but like Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. and you can do like the first appearance of Rocket Raccoon, and the yeah. first appearance of, you know, Drax, and and give people sort of a, um, you know, background for these things. Yeah, that would be super cool. I love that. You know, it would be really exciting. When I was a kid, I remember the, the King Kong 76 movie, and there was all kinds of toy merchandise. You mentioned the lunchbox. There was a board game. I used to play it with my friend. I went over to his house, and we played the King Kong board game. I mean... It was a big merchandise. The 76 Kong was a big merchandising thing. You know, it was a really, really big. And so, you know, they know that kids like it. And I agree with you. I'm glad that they're not remaking King Kong again. You don't need to remake King Kong another time. You do, that's unnecessary. I like the idea of just telling a different story of like a bunch of people go to Kong Skull Island and then a bunch of crazy nonsense happens. Like that's very exciting to me. And I love uh, John C. Riley. Uh, sort of having gone native as the guy that lives on Kong Skong Island, I'm like, oh, I am sold for this movie. Yeah, looks great. Yeah, this is cool. So, so that's King Kong. Like I said, you can check out images on the website, firewaterpodcast.com. And uh, if you see it on eBay, you can pick it up for, for a reasonable price. I would say it's worth it. Yeah, get the Treasure Edition, of course. You can get the regular size one, but get the Treasury if you can. So, uh, so Ange, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I'm always happy to talk to you. And I'm, this, again, this was one of those treasuries, kind of like the G.I. Joe one I did with, with Brian Heiler. I never thought I would get to talk about this one because I was like, well, who's going to be interested in this one? This is such a one-off, weird one. But when you wrote me and said, oh, I have a personal story about this, I'm like, oh, this is perfect. And we get the movie coming out. So thank you once again for coming on the show. No problem. Now, it doesn't sound like you're going to ask me, so I'm going to ask myself, what treasury would I put out? You're right. You um, mentioned I'm very positive. You, you told me to ask you this, and I completely forgot. Yes, um, please, answer that question once again. They should come out with the Pacific Rim 2 one. You know, uh, just like this is sort of like giant monsters, they're coming out with Pacific Rim 2. It's got everything you want. Giant Mecha, Kaiju. I think that uh, one company did a uh, Tales from the Drift uh, Pacific Rim comic. And then you just have, like, special effects pages and all that other movie nonsense. There should be a Pacific Rim treasury. That's a great idea. And we know Guillermo del Toro was big into comics, so yeah, see him doing, like, a little featurette or something. You do a die-cut diorama on the back. Cut yeah, out, cut out the th- kaijus. Yeah, I'll do the foreword. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I mean, that's good. Thank you very much for reminding me. I had it in my notes that I completely forgot to ask you. So thank you for remembering. I appreciate it. So No uh, worries. All right. Where can people find you on the Internet? I do most of my social media on Twitter at uh, DrAnge70. Um, I run a Supergirl blog called Comic Box, Comic Box Commentary. And I'm one of the Legion of Super bloggers on that site as well. All right, very cool. Uh, of course, you can follow the show over on uh, Twitter, which is uh, just at Treasury Comics. And then this and all our other great shows are on our network site, finewaterpodcast.com. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Ange, thanks once again for coming on. I really enjoyed talking to you. I always do. Everybody stay tuned. We're going to run some podcast promos, and then we're going to do some listener feedback. 
He has been challenged to read all the comics he has collected. This podcast will summarize, review, and reminisce about a single comic book issue and the time period somewhat chronologically by release date. He keeps a stack of comics near his bedside for when the time is right. Who is this interesting comic fan and what is the podcast? Hello, my name is Pat. I don't normally do podcasts about the comic books I read, but when I do, I podcast about them on The Longbox Crusade. Listen to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or on theLongboxCrusade.com, and check out the Facebook page. Read them all, my friends. It was 1938. The country continues its slow recovery from the Great Depression, while war clouds loom throughout Asia and German aggression builds in Europe. Americans seek comfort and distraction. It was a time when the most popular form of entertainment was radio. But a new form had been growing steadily and was set to explode. It was to become the golden age of the American comic book. My name is Chris. And my name is Mike. Please join us as we explore comics in the golden age between 1938 and 1955. All genres will be discussed, from superheroes to crime, horror, science fiction, humor, and western. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. And we're back with some listener feedback, and we're going to start with iTunes reviews. Um, Unfortunately, there are no new iTunes reviews. (laughs) Next, we're going to move on to the comments on the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, and we're going to start off with our pal Martin Gray. He says, what a fantastically varied collection of stories. This is like a tabloid version of Batman from the 30s to the 70s. Never thought of that, Martin, but I think you're right. That cover illustration had never looked better than with the blood red background. We don't see bold colors enough on comics, especially modern Batman. Completely agree, Martin. Chris Franklin from our network says, I don't have this treasury, but the image gallery has a pic of Batman that looks strangely familiar to me. Sure enough, the figure of Batman was repurposed, or purposely lifted, for this APC Batman puzzle from 1973. And Chris provides a picture of a puzzle which features that exact shot of Batman leaping through the air. So, yeah, I don't know whether which came first, whether it was the puzzle or the treasury. Since the puzzle came first, maybe... It was done for the puzzle and then put in later for the treasury for the uh, diorama in the back. We don't know. Anyway, thanks for the uh, graphic, Chris. That's awesome. I love seeing that stuff. Then Sphinx Vigu uh, commented, I had that puzzle when I was a kid. And Martin Gray came back and he said, uh, regarding your closing comments, Rob, I'm sure that originally the X-Men New Teen Titans was announced as a treasury edition. Can anyone confirm or refute? I don't have any evidence one way or the other, Martin, but I do know that by 1983, which was when that treasury, uh, the, the Freudian slip, when uh, that book was released, the treasuries were dead from both Marvel and DC. So I'm going to bet that it was never even considered to be a treasury, but uh, that is something worth looking into. It's not like you can't ask the, uh, the creative people involved, so maybe I'll have to do some digging on that. Anyway, uh, then Chris Franklin came back after he listened to the episode, and he said, Great episode. I loved Michael's tales of his newsstand. I had a similar experience with mine, and they are memories I treasure, ha, to this day. I've always wanted this issue, but I've never seen it in the wild, where I tend to hunt for my treasuries. That cover image is actually an improvement on the page from Batman number 251, and I think I had a pair of pajamas with the same image. Of course, Power Records would also give us the Adams Giordano Batman running along the Gotham coast with Robin thrown in for good measure. Who knew that Bronze Age Batman liked long walks on the beach? 
He said, I really enjoyed hearing Michael and hope to hear from him again. My copy of his and Yuri's Batcave Companion is well-worn and over-read. My favorite Bat reference book. Uh, yes, Chris, regarding uh, Michael's appearance, yes, he will be back on the show. I had a great time having him talking about Batman. Siskoid from our network says, great as usual. You made me feel bad that Bass and I were critical of Irv Novick's work on the invasion issue of Detective Comics. Coming soon, rip me a new one then. Will do. And then Chris Cavanaugh commented, love this podcast. Hate of the Hooded Hangman was one of my favorite Batman stories growing up, and I was especially interested in your comments about this tale. I had the original Detective Comics issue. B&B number 67 with Batman and the Flash taking on the Speed Boys, <laughs> great name, was another favorite issue. Both comics had Infantino covers and interiors. Thank you for the comment, Chris, and thanks everybody for their comments on the website. Again, you can always, uh, even if I miss your comment by the time I'm, I'm ready to do the feedback thing for the next episode, please go ahead and keep leaving comments because I'm reading them over at the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. And now I have to thank everybody who uh, retweeted or liked over on Twitter. And they are Rolled Spine, Mike Steiner 55, Dob Creative, Matt and Flower 1, Pete War 4, Comics in the GA, Ciscoid, Longbox Crusade, BTV Blog, Bazinga underscore Cal, Krypton's Wizard, Mark Gray, Comic Reflection, Lacey Field 9, Dr. Ange 70, Coffee and Comics Blog, Growler's World, PC, underscore Kavanaugh, Tony Wolfness, Stromberg Don, RM Ranger, Movie Mad Matt, Giav Maz, Jen 64 Sen, Kev Culp, Brian C. Burge, Comic Insurance, Longbox Crusade, Logan Emock, Dream Drop Master, Jimball 32, Fitz underscore and underscore starts. And finally, over on Facebook, I have to thank our pal Sean M. Myers, who said regarding to this episode, can't we read this and then listen to the podcast? Let us know what you thought of it, John. So uh, that is all the feedback for this episode. I really appreciate Dr. Ange coming back to talk about the King Kong treasury. That was a lot of fun. Everybody go out and see Kong Skull Island when it comes out. That looks like a lot of fun, and we'll be covering it on over on my show, Film and Water Podcast. So, uh, again, thanks, everybody, for listening. And until the next episode, go big or go home. Watch King Kong climb to the top of the Twin Towers every time you have a drink. It's the King Kong drinking straw. When your glass is full, King Kong sinks to the bottom. Put in your straw. And as you drink, watch him climb. The more you drink, the higher he climbs until he reaches the top. The King Kong drinking straw comes complete with two throwaway straws. The King Kong drinking straw by Mego.